0: This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.rcontext.org. What does it mean to be a person of color, the child of a Saint Vincentian father and a white British mother? In today's episode, James is going to take us through his life, from growing up in a predominantly white village in the UK to studying and living in different parts of the world. He's also going to be telling us how his experiences in different settings and points in his life have been slowly but surely shaping his identity. And Fumi, this is Hashtag Our Racism, and this is the story of James.
1: My dad is from an island in the Caribbean called St. Vincent, which is quite a small island. And my mom grew up kind of near Bristol. And, and, and my ethnicity, so to speak, though is, it's is kind of mixed. My dad's side is Portuguese Caribbean and we uh, trace our ancestry back. There's some Nigerian in there as well. And on my mom's side, there's some French and uh, other European kind of ethnicity in there as well. So it's quite mixed and that's all always been something that I've been aware of kind of my mixed ethnicity, although perhaps how it it plays out in the real world and kind of effects that it's had, or consequences had for me, hasn't always been apparent yet. It's something I've kind of learned as time has gone by. I grew up in the UK. I grew up in a small town called Tamworth, which is geographically the center of England. But apart from that, there's not anything else particularly well known, uh, that, that it's well known for. Tamworth is, I think, still to this date, probably the least diverse place that I've ever known. I genuinely mean that Um, to give you, I, you know, I grew up in the nineties, but to give you an idea of the kind of lack of diversity, the last census I remember reading, which was 2014, I think it was 97.9% white, the population, 2% Asian, which means that anyone who was black or minority ethnic that wasn't Asian fit into a category of less than 1%. And that was me. And the only other non-white person that I knew until I was 12 years old was my cousin. (laughs) Didn't know anyone else. Me and my cousin were the only two non-white people in my school. I remember that being quite a thing. You know, everyone knew straight away that I was related to him because of that. You know, I didn't grow up with a lot of friends that that looked like me. And yeah, I mean, that was obviously something that from quite an early age, I, I, I started to become quite aware of that, that difference.
0: James remembers moments at school where he was made fun of, both by his peers and teachers.
1: I had it from kind of like, peers, but I also had it on kind of like an institutional level to, to an extent, you know, I remember one remarkable moment was in my year eight. So that's like when you're 12 or 13 history class and I hadn't done particularly well on a test. And one of my teachers told me, well, that's what you guys tend to do. And I was like, oh. and it was like, you know, you know, people from Caribbean backgrounds, you don't tend to do as well. And that subjects like this and just literally labeled me straight away into a, a stereotype of a performance stereotype. That really pissed me off. And so like from that moment onwards, it's actually quite useful at the back. And I'm really grateful they said it because it actually did fuel me to be like, no one's ever going to tell me that again. No one's ever going to. I'm never going to play into what other people think is a stereotype. Like, I'm going to change the stereotype. I'm going to change the narrative. And then kind of like with my peers, you know, the N word got thrown around quite a lot and there'd be lots of kind of jokes like, let's say me and my friends had agreed to go into town after school and get some food. Someone might make a joke like, oh, well, we're going to have to go get KFC because James is coming, kind of thing like that. You know, the, the kind of stereotype between people of colour, black people especially, in fried chicken, for example, like that thing would always come up. And it, it was always, I think, you know, I never really took slides when I was younger because I, I didn't really understand what was behind it. I didn't really understand the context. I kind of, you know, also I grew up in a culture where everyone was kind of telling me that and there were kind of jokes and I was just like, ha-ha, you know, I kind of went along with it, didn't really think too much. I was playing rugby since I was about nine. And especially kind of rugby, those things came out Um, you know, there's quite a lot of banter that goes on in rugby and a lot of jokes being made. And, you, you know, often it's kind of a sign of, um, camaraderie, you know, generally like you don't, you won't take the mick out of someone that you don't like kind of thing. So it was always, I always kind of approached it like that, like, oh, if, if they're saying comments it's cause they actually like me kind of thing, which is not as clear cut as, as you know, you might assume, but yeah, like in, in rugby as well, you know, there's always expectations of like someone might look at kind of my skin and be like oh, okay so you must be quick then or you know you must be like really agile or like nimble and stuff like that you know kind of stereotypes based on my skin color but skin color about how i'm going to perform on on an athlete, you know and athletics on the pitch and things like that and so yeah kind of sports like that there was one time actually so this this to this day is still one of my most like shameful moments and i think back on this all the time and it's, i wouldn't even describe it as like I feel a panic. cringy. I just find it like actually just like shameful that I was complicit in this. I remember when I was fifteen and I went on a on a tour to Wales. It ended up with me, like, and some of the boy other teammates like creating a poem. Where in the poem I referred to myself with the n word, like, in quite a detrimental way. And I was like, and now I look back at it, like I don't know why I did that. Like I did it just to make them laugh as a kid, and then I I felt so ashamed by that, but. You know, they they encouraged it. Everyone found it funny kind of thing. And now I look back and I think, what am I doing?
0: James doesn't recall talking about these incidences that happened at school and rugby with anyone, with the exception of his cousin who went to the same school as him.
1: I didn't at the time really understand that there was anything wrong happening, so I didn't really feel a need to address it, so to speak. You know, my cousin was kind of three years older, so we were close. Like, we were were really close. Like, I guess we'd say, like, we grew up more brothers than anything else. You know, we lived about two minutes from each other. We we were with each other all the time. Our mom's really close kind of thing. So we we did have a strong, close relationship, but that never really came up when I was quite young, I guess I'd say in secondary school and, and kind of every moment post then. Kind of the age of 14, 15 upwards, we did have quite a lot of conversations because we we're both kind of aware, you know, we both become quite considerably more aware of what was behind what was being said and kind of the, some of the harmful connotations that were coming our way. But with my parents, no, I I definitely struggled to speak about it with my mom as well, because I think my mom, <laughs> so like, I think there's a lot of white people who they, I don't doubt their intentions in terms of, you know, I, I wouldn't say they, they actively consider themselves racist and, and, and lots of ways try and demonstrate their kind of understanding. But I think my mom, like a lot of white people didn't quite understand and her response whenever I did mention things would be like, oh, you know, well, I, I just don't kind of, I don't, I didn't see the reason to focus on color. You know, I do not see color, you know, I, I didn't see that in your dad. And it's kind of like, it's hard to have a conversation with someone like that because their intentions are good, but it shows a level of ignorance that you just can't really address. Uh, and, you know, I think I never really felt like my mom would necessarily understand my situation. You know, she was white in a town that was mostly white. You know, I was the one who was not white in a town that was mostly white. So our difference, you know, our difference of perspective and and, and challenges were noticeable to me. And then with my dad, I didn't really talk about it with him much either just because Especially when I was younger, I didn't really feel... My, my dad's my dad's a great guy, but he's not necessarily like the best talker or the most eloquent talker. So I never felt like I could have those kind of intellectual conversations with him about the topic.
0: James also has two sisters, both six years older and younger than him. He says one of the reasons he didn't talk about his experiences at school with them, besides their age differences, was because they looked different from him.
1: What's interesting is my older sister is mixed races, again, same ethnicity essentially as me but her features are quite what you might consider Caucasian in a sense, you know, her skin isn't particularly dark, her hair is not too, is quite fairly straight. She can pass essentially as not being half black. A lot of the time she often has, and that has led to us having quite, you know, remarkably different experiences in life. My younger sister, her hair and a lot of her features are quite black, but her skin is quite light. I'm not particularly dark, but compared to my sisters, I'm a lot, lot darker than them. And that's kind of changed our um, perspective and our experiences.
0: After obtaining his high school degree, James left Tamworth and went to Sheffield, a city in South Yorkshire to continue his studies.
1: Sheffield it was interesting because Sheffield, again, different part of the UK, you know, in North England, whereas I grew up in the middle of England, but also, you know, as a lot of big universities are, had a good level of diversity. It was the first time I would kind of been to a major city, lived in a major city. Where I was like, oh wow, well, okay. So like, you know, it's pretty pretty diverse. This is cool. And you know, I, I I had yeah a diverse set of friends that I made in Sheffield to an well to an extent. Some of the kind of same norms followed me into university as they did in my hometown, which was that I played rugby for university, and it's it was still quite a predominantly white team. And also, it's interesting to see how race and class intersect because rugby is quite a middle well middle upper class kind of sport and there's a lot of wearing tweed jackets and some of the guys like went fox hunting and all ridiculous kind of things like that and you know just like had come from kind of very privileged kind of backgrounds and also happened to be white and so there was not for me i found a i guess great maybe a further divide than my hometown where i came from a, a lower economic background with with some of them, because in my hometown, we all came, came from similar kind of family backgrounds in terms of socioeconomic. But then, you know, obviously, there was the the race difference, whereas in university, there was the race difference and the different economic situations. So, like, there was a further distinction that I kind of felt, which made me feel even more different.
0: Besides rugby, James recalled certain moments during his university years when he felt like he was treated differently because of the way he looked.
1: I would say that a lot of the experiences I, I had were kind of, implicit or subtle I never had a a, a lot of well maybe on nights out if people were drunk guys get aggressive they might like you say uh you know f-u-u-n-word etc etc like that kind of thing which I had that I I would just brush it off because I just put that down to their ignorance I didn't really let it affect me I didn't associate it with my worth so to speak kind of at this point developed an understanding of of that my self-worth isn't linked to anything that they call me kind of thing so it didn't really bother me so I'd have the kind of occasional racial slur on nights out and things like that. (laughs) Here's something I'd like go to house parties or something. And they let's say like when I arrive, they would be playing, you know, Kings of Leon or blink one, eight two. And then I'd come in and then there'd be, and then no one would say anything or ask me They'd just put on Drake straight away or like put on Kanye West or something. (laughs) And actually here's another thing. So, Someone I lived with in my halls in first year and then also lived again in my third year was uh, another mixed race guy called Ben. So he was mixed race black like me, different black ethnicity, but, you know, we're both mixed race, white, black. And I think we definitely kind of aligned on that quite a lot. And that would happen. The thing about the music would happen with either of us, like it would always come on. And like people just would like assume that we just only wanted to listen to hip hop. And like we both loved hip hop, but that wasn't the point. Like the point is that even without them knowing, even if they didn't even know, it, it's like we'd go to someone else's house party. We'd go in the room. They'd be like, "You want some like Drake? You want some like, you know, whatever?" And for like play whatever music you want. So I kind of felt like they were just assuming things about me based on not a lot of information. How it made me feel was different, right? Because I'm like five white people have just walked in the room, and you haven't changed the music for them. Or offered to change the music, I've walked in the room and you're offering to change the music. So you identify with me as different to you in some important way. So that obviously would make you feel different straight away. As for the intentions, you know, I can't I can't definitively say what they are. I can only say that based on my experience, which is had a white person walked in the room and they offered to change the music, I wouldn't even put it down to my race, but specifically because there are lots of instances where I would it would only happen after me or my friend Ben walked into the room or you know, sat down next to the person, that that would happen, I kind of couldn't help but feel there was a connection between that and the colour of my skin, his skin, our skin.
0: While some moments were isolated manifestations, other experiences, he says, happened on a very regular basis.
1: And this happened on quite a regular basis, where largely I like to think I'm good at articulating myself. And because I always did well at school, people would be surprised. If I would be having a debate with someone and I'd present an argument really articulately, they'd be like, oh, you sound so white when you say that. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) as if intelligence is, is intelligence is linked to whiteness. The thing about that, I think is a lot of the time, I think that peers that said that were making a joke and I think they probably didn't think too much into it, but they didn't understand that they were feeding into a systemic issue a long historical systemic issue. They might not explicitly have been told as a child, definitely cultural, TV, journey, you know, uh, academia. There's been so many influences that have subconsciously perpetuated that belief. And I think that that fed into a lot of it. And I knew myself that that wasn't true, like, but it was, again, when I was just talking about how to articulate my issues, I was like, I didn't even, when people would say that, I wouldn't even know how to articulate it. You know, like, why do you mean like, I'm I'm intelligent and I'm not white, what, why are you saying that?
0: In addition to the UK, James studied and worked in different places, amongst others, France and Rwanda. He says his experiences of being othered varies depending on where he is, and that it's also quite difficult to sometimes pinpoint daily manifestations of racism because he got numb to them over time.
1: A lot of my experiences in the UK, at least, have been quite subtle ones. I think, at least how my brain works, is there are some really powerful moments specifically that I remember, but in terms of the day-to-day stuff, I think that you can get kind of numb to it and therefore it can be hard to remember it because you just kind of subconsciously, you just deal with it and brush it aside. A lot of my experiences, I think, were, oh, or some of the things I'm thinking of right now are things that I can't say definitively were down to my down to my race. It's just, I had a feeling that they were. You know, like there's times when I I'd walk in shops and like, I'd get like security, white well, security guards, you know, like I felt like they were following me around the shop, like suspiciously, like, is he going to steal something? You know, I always felt a comfortable, going into shops with like a hoodie on or something or like tracksuits in case like there was like impressions made of me like based off a combination of my clothing and my skin colour kind of thing. My experiences outside of the UK have sometimes been more direct as in when I lived in Paris. Interestingly as well, because I haven't got one now, but I, I can grow a beard as I can get quite a decent beard. And like when I lived in Paris, at times I had a beard and again, because of my I guess my kind of ethnicity, I could I've been people have assumed that i'm also arab as well and you know in paris people of arab descent can get a lot of stick as well they can face a lot of kind of racism and prejudice and i I, I had people kind of either coming at me from the black angle or the arab or the black arab angle thing about being mixed race black as well right is that quite often you just get called black that's how it happens. You know, Barack Obama, the first black president of the United States. Well, he's actually mixed race, but people call him first black president because it fits a certain narrative that people want to tell. And I think that one of the things I got used to in my life is just been called black. I never really questioned it. and never really, like, corrected people. I just... And to an extent, I kind of... Just that's what I would consider myself. And it's something that I'm still continually, like, it's a weird one. I, I know that biologically I'm mixed race, but which side do I identify more with is, is a, you know, an ongoing debate quite often. But when I went to Rwanda, they... They have a word for that. They often call foreign people. It's called Mazongu, And Mazongu means like white man, uh, uh, ghost man, it actually translates as ghost man, but it's referred to like, used to white people. And I remember being in a group of, for, I think everyone else was white and they were being called Mazongu, Mazongu, And I was like, oh, okay, they're calling you Mazongu. And then there was a time when I was on my own and I got called Mazongu, and then it happened more often. I was like, wow. So I'm, I'm the white man to you because obviously that skin was so much darker than mine. But it was the first time that I'd ever been called white and that felt really uncomfortable. I was like, I just really like wanted to reject that. I was like, no, that's not me. I'm one of zongu, but to, to them I am. And it's it's interesting being mixed race because depending on where you are in the world, like you get seen through different lenses that neither which really, you know, none of which can necessarily fit you. I'm not black and I'm not white. And so like calling me black or white is not correct. Like, and that was uncomfortable.
0: James says he was more uncomfortable being called white in Rwanda more than he ever was called black in the UK or anywhere else. And his reasoning for this discomfort lies in his pride for his black side.
1: I think I did. I have largely always kind of aligned, felt more aligned to my black side. And I think that's for two reasons. Is One, because when you grow up in a predominantly white place like that, you feel straight away that that's not you. <laughs> so you're like, well, I'm not them. Like I definitely not them, so I must be the other. That's how I kind of, and it's not that it's clear, but when you're young, that kind of, you miss the nuances and you think that it is, excuse the pun, quite black and white like that. And you think that you're either one or the other. So I kind of just was like that, you know, I said, I'm not white, you know, I'm not like 97.9% of this town. So therefore I must be the other side, which my dad is, which is kind of black. And I think that, I think part of it as well is, you know, (sighs) I, I think that considering myself, black and specifically black caribbean a black vincentian which is what you're called if you're from st vincent is was not a you know also a way to feel more closely aligned with that side of my culture because growing up in the uk with my mum's side of the family all living here pretty much it was easy to feel connected to my culture i'm in the uk i can do british things i can adhere to british norms like going for a sunday roast at, at the pub or you know, like having scones and stuff like that, all the kind of classic British stuff. But, you know, a lot of my Caribbean family doesn't live here. Or I didn't live near them. And they lived in other parts of the UK, so I didn't feel as closely aligned to that. And so I guess in a strange way, like, I felt closer. I, I was try. I consider myself more black. because so I was like, well, that's my way of, of holding on to this other side of me that I haven't had a massive amount of exposure to in my early
0: years. James hasn't been to St. Vincent in 20 years due to various reasons. But recently, the stars aligned... And you finally got to visit the island. It was a trip he's been planning for as long as he can remember.
1: I'd been wanting to go back for so long and it was kind of like a yearning. It felt like quite an inherent yearning to go back to like reconnect with something. I had memories from when I was really small, like five years old, and I kind of was like I guess like for a long time I, I had like had these memories I was like I want to know if they're real. Do I remember the banana trees? Do I remember what the sea looked like? Or is it just, you know, what stories people have told me. So it was so important for me to go back on, on that front. And when i was you know there going around from here's the interesting thing about the the, the demographic of saint vincent is it's 66 of the island are, are black caribs so black caribs are uh, descendants of yellow caribs people from south american islands who settled on saint vincent that then had children with west african slaves that escaped to the island so like caribers and their skin is quite dark, but then there's still a third of the island, 33% in considerable population, where their skin is a lot lighter and like mine. So in terms of how I looked outwardly, aesthetically, I blended in perfectly. And then it wasn't until I opened my mouth and my Brit- my British accent came out that anyone knew any different. So I was able to kind of walk around quite freely, which a level of freedom I hadn't felt anywhere else.
0: James also had the chance to visit the house that belongs to his family. It's the house both his father and grandfather grew up in.
1: I was able to see the house that I hadn't visited in 20 years and, like, you know, the land that, around it that belongs to us as well. And just put my hands on the ground and feel the grass and, like, just feel, like, connected to this place that's responsible for kind of half of me. Ah, it's amazing. It's a beautiful island.
0: The trip to St. Vincent was important for James to become more at peace with his identity in relation to his race, particularly the importance of self-identification instead of external attribution
1: internally i think i've had a lot of conflict i think i felt a lot of anger in my early adult years in terms of i guess for a long time for as long as i can remember i felt some level of uncomfortability or like something like frustration but wasn't able to articulate it and then i read a lot of books and one of the books being a a book by a a british author rapper comedian called akala called native he was mixed race as well which discussed kind of you know his experiences of growing up mixed race but he did it so eloquently articulately to explain some of the the issues behind what we're facing and it kind of gave a voice to my own resentment and my own frustrations Mm -hmm. and then having read that i kind of became quite angry and i started to really reject my, my british side you know i'm not proud of a lot of the history of what we've done anyway the best of times and then i think about in relation to my own my own existence it's it kind of made me ashamed to feel British. So I really started to reject my British side and lean way more heavily into kind of my black side and that that added a lot of fuel to my desire to want to go back to the Caribbeans and, and be around people that, you know, hadn't ruled a third of the world and colonialized loads of people and just caused massacres in India after they decolonized them or, you know, contributed significantly to Caribbean slave trade. Like it's, you know, I didn't want to be around that. I didn't want to identify with that. But then over the last few years, I think especially actually especially having come back from St Vincent I think that kind of settled because it kind of just reminded me that like I kind of got to relieve some of the pressure that I'd been feeling I kind of got to be around people like that I identified with on one side and be like okay like no one could take that away from me even if they call you mixed race you know whatever they call you you will know that you're always half of this that this is always half your identity that that's fine you don't have to worry about that like you know, I was always worried about people not calling me, you know, what if I, they don't really like see that side of me, you know? What if they they look at you know, think about my intelligence or like the way I present myself and, and call me white accordingly and they don't identify, I don't recognise that black side, but going back to St. Vincent kind of alleviated that for me, that concern. I was like, I know that in myself, and so that was good. And so that since then it's been a process of kind of really becoming more comfortable with the other side of my of me, which is you kind of that that white side.
0: James reflects on the journey about his relation to an understanding of racism and what he thinks needs to be done to tackle the issue.
1: My understanding of racism started out quite immature. I saw it on quite a basic level. I saw racism as one person saying something to someone else who isn't white and that's racism. And as I've got older and especially having quite an academic curiosity, I've read lots of books on the matter uh, and, and kind of related topics like power and things like that. And what I kind of now have is not a not at all an expert understanding, but I'm, I'm, I like to think a more mature understanding of, of racism. And my relationship with racism is that it's, it's a complex thing. It's not just one person saying something to someone else. There is that, of course, that interpersonal level, me and you, you and them. It's, you know, institutional schools, hospitals, police. It can be a state level. It can be government policies that, think about the Windrush scandal, for example, only 2013, it was 2013, well that's seven years ago now, the Conservative Party in the UK had vans that went round with a slogan on that said, go back to your own country or face prosecution. So like, there's so many different levels at which racism can operate. And it's definitely for me being, you know, a, a slow but ongoing process to understand its complexity. You know, I think when it comes to racism, there's quite often a debate that people of colour can have with white people and they say, well, I'm not racist because I don't call people names. And and then you can, in response, say to that, well, actually, like, here are the ways that you benefit from racism, number one. And then number two, even if you don't consider yourself racist, what are you doing to be anti-racist? You know, what are you doing to actually help level the playing field for people who haven't had the same advantages as you in life? And often people really struggle to answer that question. And it really shows, again, that unintentional or deliberate ignorance that people have. There is a lot to be said about the relationship between racism and privilege they're inherently quite linked and i think that even if because you're a person of color you can't be racist you can still be privileged i think it's really important for everyone of any color any ethnicity to kind of be aware of their privilege i as a man have privileges that a woman doesn't have for example and the intersectionality of race and sex and class are you know it's super important to understand so people should understand different ways that their privilege can interact with different parts of their personality and the personalities of others. And then I guess my final kind of way that I think people can start to address racism is talking about it. There's no point being silent. If you're uncomfortable, I understand that. Like It's not easy necessarily for people of color to talk about racism, especially when they're the victims of it. But everyone, whether you're white, black, you know any anything should be having these conversations about racism because it's only through dialogue through tactful respectful diplomatic open honest dialogue that any change is actually going to come about you don't understand something unless you have the means by which to address it and approach it so super important for people to be talking about racism
0: You can find more information about the Windverse scandal James referred to in this episode, as well as other articles and books he recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to James for his time and energy in reliving for us some of his painful memories and sharing with us important reflections on this issue.